meditation 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 depending on the quality of my you know there's good days and bad days I mean I feel like the waterfall of thoughts every now and then a nice calm can't think of anything this is meditation in the city the Shambhala New York podcast thank you for listening to the meditation in the city podcast a podcast where we explore topics on Buddhist meditation and maintaining a meditation practice amidst living in a busy world. My name is Francesca, and I'm your host. The title of this episode is Difficult Emotions. How do we function when we're caught up in anger or fear, or we just freeze? The lizard brain takes over, and it seems like threats are everywhere. In this episode, we discuss how meditation helps us encounter our difficult emotions. Today we are joined by Robert Chender. Robert is a senior meditation teacher in the Shambhala Buddhist tradition and is a student of the late Chagyam Trungpa Rinpoche. He also works with business and professional groups and individuals in applying mindfulness and emotional intelligence practices to workplace efficiency, corporate culture and morale, and is a trainer for the Search Inside Yourself Leadership Institute, the mindfulness program developed at Google. Robert is counsel at a large New York firm and is the founder of the New York City Bar Association Contemplative Lawyers Group. He is a graduate of Vassar College and the NYU School of Law. The Meditation in the City podcast is hosted by the Shambhala Meditation Center of New York. This talk was recorded in 2018. Here's Robert to take away the discussion. So, um, let's talk about um, physiology first. So, it seems we have a number of different brain systems. Um, And uh, in particular, I wanted to talk about what's known as the lizard brain, uh, also uh, of which the amygdala is a part of that. And those are these two kind of almond-shaped organs on either side of your head around there or inside your brain. And then the prefrontal cortex, which is the the rational brain system, which actually um, um, is what makes us human. It's where we find the ability or, or what causes the, our ability to, to uh, make rational decisions. So what happens, as, as Jonathan uh, aptly said, is that when we perceive some kind of a threat, um, our amygdala kicks in and uh, we go into a mode of fight, flee, or freeze. Uh, we, you know, we've all experienced this. We probably experience it all the time, where we get something triggers us, something causes us to perceive a threat, and then we we default into whatever our particular habit is. So, if something, um, for example, uh, makes us angry, then uh, we either go into aggression mode, or we go into um, escape mode, or we 
dissociate, you go into freeze mode. Um, and escape mode can also uh, be, be, you can think of escape mode as going towards something that soothes you, so which actually can turn into addiction. So we, we all have, you know, f more or less, we have these um, instinctual reactions to threat. And uh, if, you th if you think about the evolutionary biology of it, um, you're walking, you know, 200,000 years ago, you're walking in the savanna and you see a saber-toothed tiger and you go into fight, flee, or freeze. Hopefully you don't fight, that's probably a bad idea. You might flee or you might freeze and hope the tiger doesn't see you and then then the threat is gone the tiger leaves and then you're you're you, then you you downregulate your amygdala your your back into prefrontal cortex you're not governed by your instincts um, these days there are threats everywhere um, we were threatened by what we read in the news we're threatened by what happens at, at work. We're threatened by um, people we thought we knew turning into someone we think we realize we don't know. Um, we have versions of the way we want things to be and they turn out to not be that way. And so we, we experience um, difficult emotions. We experience anger. Um, we experience fear. Um, we experience um, indignation. And in, in each case, um, it starts with uh, a threat. It's a threat to our version of reality or a threat to our survival or a threat to... Um, literally our survival um, you know we've we all I'm certain have been traumatized in our lives in one way or another and that's um, a particularly um, intense or particularly pervasive or particularly permanent relatively permanent difficult emotion that we, you know, keeps on coming up in our lives. And so what do we do? So let's uh, talk about why we meditate in the first place. So the practice is we sit on the cushion or on a chair, in my case, uh, and bring our attention to our breathing. And we're paying attention to our breath. And we become distracted. And very often we become distracted by a story about what's, what, what's the th current threat in my life? What's threatening my, my well-being? What's threatening my version of reality? What's threatening um, my country? <laughs> you know, what's, 
What's, why do I feel bad? Why am I angry? So we, we start telling ourselves stories. And the instruction is, okay, notice the story. And for the time we're meditating, we don't, the instruction is, don't um, put yourself into it. Come back to the present. Because when we're telling ourselves a story, we're either in the past or we're in the future. We're not here. It's not now. So the instruction is, okay, it's okay to do that. We all do that. There's no problem with it particularly coming up because it does. And so we notice it and with, without judging ourselves and with, with this attitude of, of deep friendliness to ourselves, we can let go. We don't have to put energy into the story anymore. Come back to the breath. Come back to the breath. And what, we, what we'll notice is that there's actually two components of emotion. There's the story component, and then there's the, um, the body component. Emotions are actually body sensations. Right? The reason that we um, maintain the story we keep on telling ourselves the story because we feel bad, literally feel bad. Our bodies feel bad so we can feel bad in our heart center or our head or whatever, however emotion manifests in you. And in fact, there was an interesting study um, where um, people from different ethnic groups were shown various media and were, were uh, which was designed to... Um, um, elicit emotion, a particular emotion, and then they were asked to color in where they felt it, both uh, increase uh, and decrease in sensation in their bodies. And so it turns out that there's, there's a high correlation you know, in humans of where you feel anger or jealousy or shame or joy, for example. <clears throat> so... Uh, we can, if we let go of the story, in, in the practice, we let go of the story. Right? And it's not so easy, of course, because it's still hanging around. But if we actually bring our attention to the breathing, we can start to um, be willing to feel what we feel. Because what the story's doing is trying to get us to feel better. We're always trying to feel better. That's what we do as humans. We're all trying to become happier. So the, the habit that we have when we ex experience negativity, experience, experience pain, experience um, betrayal, um, experience anger, experience um, quality of groundlessness or falling because our world got, maybe the rug got pulled out from under us. Or, or even when we feel grief, you know, is um, when we 
when we engage in a story about it, where instead of um, feeling better, it actually solidifies the, the difficult emotion. So we all know people, for example, who walk around with low levels of chronic anger. So people who, you know, who have, you know, they, they have a bad temper. You know, and the reason they have a bad temper is because the way they deal with their own suffering is by um, tell, continually telling us a, a victim story or a story about why their anger is justified. And they think it makes them feel better to do that. And in fact, actually it doesn't. <clears throat> so with, with meditation practice, um, what we start to do is we start to um, develop what we call emotional balance. And what emotional balance is that we actually don't need to do anything when we experience an emotion. We, we don't have to go into our amygdala or when, if we do go into our amygdala, we, we notice it because we've, we've, we've developed this, um, excuse me, this kind of mental muscle of noticing. If we become, the more we practice meditation, the more we develop this uh, ability to come back when we're distracted because that's, that's the practice. That's what we're doing. The practice isn't about sitting there and following your breath. The practice is about developing the ability to come back when we're distracted. And then we can sit there and follow our breath. So the more we do that, the more we develop this ability to come back, the more it, it leaks into our day-to-day -day life, right? And so when we experience anger, we can notice it on the spot. Oh, I'm, I'm feeling angry. So, I mean, in a sense, there's a, it, it's almost like there's a, we have a physiological relationship with our emotion instead of an existential one. It's not, I am angry, it's I'm feeling anger in my body. So I notice that I'm feeling this anger. What do I do? So that's the start of emotional balance because we're not compelled to do anything. We're, we don't have to, rep and, and it's really not about repressing the anger. You know, we can feel the anger fully and you know, it just is what it is. We don't have to do anything with it. Now, we may want to do ever something with it because it actually may carry a lot of intelligence. But it becomes a choice of what to do rather than a reaction. So I might feel angry and, you know, I might have, you know, this idea that I want to punch somebody in the nose. And instead, you know, what I might do is get out the vote. <laughs> <laughs> instead so that's sort of the sort of the intelligent relationship with anger um, so um, the first takeaway here is that emotions are are not what I am emotions are what I feel it's not me and in fact um, the, you know the, I, I love telling this story um, which is that when my son was, my number two son was seven, 
uh, there was we were having some heated discussion, <laughs> which you can have with a seven-year-old. And he stood up straight and he put his arms down. And he said, "Daddy, you're not the boss of me." <laughs> and I always remember that because in the connection with our emotions, we can have the same attitude. Our emotions are not the boss of us. And in fact, actually, um, they've been the boss of us. And they're still the boss of us sometimes, but what we're practicing in meditation, in mindfulness, is to not have them be the boss, which doesn't mean not feel them, actually the opposite. The only way that we can um, be the boss of our emotions is actually if we're willing to experiencing, experience them fully. What, what happens when we um, go into this fight, flee, or freeze is we're actually not, ex our, our, we're not experiencing our emotions fully, we're reacting. It's, a, it's an evolutionary biology thing. So what we want to do is get away from our, um, our old lizard patterns of, of reacting to threat and actually become more intelligent. And the more, the more we do this practice, the, the quicker we get from our amygdala back into our prefrontal cortex, where we notice, okay, this is what's going on. What do I do? So the idea is we can act in spite of how we feel rather than because of how we feel. That's key, key point here. Emotion, emotions aren't the drivers anymore. And then that's how we can achieve uh, what's known as equanimity. Emotional balance is another word for equanimity. Um, may we be free from the three poisons, which are fight, flee, and freeze. Passion, aggression, and aversion. Or passion, aversion, and uh, ignorance. Those are the th what are called the three poisons in Buddhism, which are the, the way we react to difficulty. Now, emotions are, are, are um, interesting aspects of us. So there, there's a guy called Antonio Damasio, who's a neurophysiologist in California, and he's known as, uh, in some circles as the neurophysiologist of last resort. And uh, there was a, a guy who uh, had a, uh, I think he had a brain tumor, and they, it was benign, and they took it out. And what they did was they cut the connection between the amygdala and the prefrontal cortex. And uh, because they had to do it in order to get the tumor out. And uh, he, he took cognitive tests before the operation. He took cognitive tests after the operation. Everything was fine. You know, there was no, no problem. He's given a clean bill of health and released from the hospital. Uh, he was a lawyer. And um, he lost his job. Um, he lost another job. His wife divorced him. And he wound up living in his brother's spare bedroom. 
and he didn't know what was going on. And so he wound up at Damasio, and um, uh, Damasio gave him the same battery of cognitive tests, and <clears throat> everything was fine. And he said that the first clue he got about what was wrong with this guy <clears throat> was that um, uh, he asked this fellow, when do you want your next appointment to be? And he, he could explain the pros and cons of every hour in the next two weeks, but he couldn't make a decision because he couldn't feel what he wanted more. Okay, we're always, we're always um, feeling how we, what we want things to be. We're always, it's, we're always using emotion to guide, our, guide ourselves. And we don't always know that. You know, we, we think we're kind of rational beings that experience emotions. And in fact, we're emotional beings who s use rational thought sometimes to um, uh, make up reasons for why we feel a certain way. You know, I, they're, they're, uh, I don't want to get into a political conversation, <laughs> but sometimes I do. Um, part of politics in this country is around how different groups of people experience emotions and what they're taught. So certain groups of people experience or taught to feel disgusted in the presence of other people, for example. So you wind up with, um, uh, racism and homophobia and that. And it's all about emotion. It's all about fear and disgust. You know, and that's, that's the cause of World War II was that same thing. You know, it's, it's fear. It's fear of other. It's disgust with other. It's, it's tribalism. And it's all emotional. You know, it's not, you know, it's not any kind of discussion about it is, is a rationalization of, of why we feel the way we feel. Now, what we do in, in, our, um, in our Buddhist practice is to actually uh, deconstruct why we feel the way we feel. You know, we're, we're not caught, or we're starting not to be caught in uh, our story. We're starting to be able to see that the stories we tell ourselves aren't necessarily true. So we have, you know, I have a story about so-and-so who really hurt me and um, you know, I'm still carrying that around you know, 10 years later. And that person's in Peru and hasn't thought about me in years, but I'm still, you know, this person really hurt me and blah, blah, blah. And the question that I might ask myself is, well, is that a true story? I mean, maybe, maybe there's an element of truth in it, but 
can I start to um, give myself an antidote to that? Part of the problem is that our, we, we um, define ourselves very often by the stories we tell ourselves about who we are. And imagine what our lives would be if we didn't believe our stories. Well, I'm this guy and I have this credential and this makes me that and I've done this and blah, 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 blah. And I'm, you know, I'm this guy. Actually, I'm just sitting here. <laughs> and in a sense, I'm the sum of my, you know, everything has come through. But um, there's nothing going on except this. So the story I tell myself is just a story. Actually, the only thing to do now is to try to be present and kind, which is actually there's an, <laughs> that's the great secret teaching of Buddhism, which is be kind. And you can spend the rest of your life trying to figure out what that means. Be kind to yourself. What is be kind to myself? What? Well, maybe being kind to myself means not believing my stories and not holding on to the, the pain that you know, we, all, we all experience. You know, and I, I don't mean, there's, I'm not minimizing it. You know, we've, we, we all have been traumatized in one way or another. We're all, we, we're, we all experience pain. But what we can start to do is to start to let go of suffering. Okay, the first noble truth of Buddhism is that we all suffer. What does that mean? It doesn't mean we all experience pain. Well, we do all experience pain, but we, what we do is we all try to avoid it. We all want not to experience pain. And it turns out, and this is one of the many great paradoxes of Buddhism, is the only way not to suffer is to be willing to experience our pain. Which means you don't have to tell yourself a story about it. It just is what it is. So when you feel betrayed or you feel anger or you feel grief, it is what it is. You know? And you know, in a sense, it's not a problem. And that's what equanimity is. You know, if things, if things are difficult, I can deal with it. If things are joyful, I can deal with that too. I don't have to be attached to the joy and, um, you know, a, experience aversion to the, to the pain. You know, life is, we're born and we get old and we get sick and we die. And that happens to everybody. But what we can, we can start to imagine what it would be like to do that without worrying about it so much. <laughs> 
without trying to avoid it, without trying to make things better for ourselves, which again, the paradox is if we stop trying to make things better, they do get better. It's funny that way. So, um, there's two Zen monks walking down the road and uh, they come to a, a river and there's a, a, a woman with a, with a very expensive and beautiful kimono. She's just standing there because she doesn't want to get her kimono wet. Um, and there's no boat. So one of the monks picks her up and carries her across and puts her down and they continue. So they go for about four hours and the second monk finally turns to the first monk and says, what, did you, what were you doing? What were you doing? You know, you're not supposed to touch women. You broke your vow. It's a terrible thing. First monk says, well, you know, I put her down four hours ago. It sounds like you're still carrying her. It's what we do. We carry those feelings. And yeah, he broke his vow and okay, he did it. And you know, he, it was in context and decided to do that because he, he helped this person and that was it, it was no big deal. So what we can start to do is, um, Again, coming back to the, pra the actual practice, come back. Just be present. Just feel what we feel. And it's, it's hard. Okay? This is not, it's not easy to do. It's really, all you have to do is read the paper and feel pain. You know? And um, if you can stay with your body, and again, this is it's really a body practice. Because working with emotion is a body practice. Stay in your body. You know, and there's, there's all sorts of interesting body scans we can do, uh, which you can find online. Um, stay in your body. And if, when the story arises, and it does, and it's fine, don't necessarily believe it. It may be true, it may have elements of truth, and it may be false, but you're the only one who knows. And if we're holding on to something, because we, that's our habit, holding on to anger, for example, holding on to trauma. You know, I don't, there's, I'm not minimizing trauma at all, and you know, there's ways of working with, with trauma you know, and, and, but this is just one point in that regard. Um, let go. Just come back to the body. You know, and see if you can start to forgive yourself. And the, the, the yeah, this is an, an, another key aspect of working with uh, our pain and our suffer in particular our suffering, which is our pain of pain, is, you know, 
we, we all criticize ourselves a lot. Uh, here's another story. <laughs> so this is told by Sharon Salzberg, who's a, if you don't know her, she's a wonderful Buddhist teacher. Um, and when she, she was at a conference of, of Buddhist teachers um, with the Dalai Lama, and this was probably over 20 years ago, maybe 30 years ago. <clears throat> and uh, so she was explaining to the Dalai Lama that the, the most um, difficult thing for her students is that they didn't like themselves. Or they, they were very critical of themselves. And, <clears throat> she, and the Dalai Lama looked at her and he said, what? <laughs> so she repeated, and then he turns to us, he speaks English, but he turns to his translator, he says, what did she say? So the translator you know, goes on and on, and then there's a back and forth, and it takes about an hour. And then he finally says, oh, now I know what you mean. We don't have that in Tibet. <laughs> That's interesting, isn't it? We don't have that. We don't have disliking ourselves in Tibet. It's not part of our culture, which means that if it's not part of our culture, it's something we actually learned. And we can, you know, I can, I can talk, start talking about monotheism, but I won't. But we learned it in this culture. So the point is that um, if we are critical of ourselves, we don't have to be. That's not who we are. It's not um, necessary. It's not part of being human. It's not any of those things. It's actually just a story we tell ourselves. And the way we know it's a story is that uh, if we were to talk to us if we were our best friend and we would talk to ourselves, or if, you're, if, or if if your best friend were experiencing what you're experiencing and you talk to them, you'd tell them a very something very different than what you tell yourself. Okay? Don't believe your stories. They're not true. At least those ones aren't. You know, we all are socially awkward or, you know, have, you know, make mistakes or whatever it is we do. But we can just go, we can go on. We don't have to torture ourselves with that. It's just another sort of negative, it's, it's sort of anger turned inwards. So it's, it's, just an, it's just an emotion. You know, and we, it's, it's a way we work with threat. And it's, it's, not, uh, it's not helpful. <laughs> So, we will experience pain and we'll experience loneliness and we'll, you know, there'll be all these difficulties that we experience, but we, we don't have to um, make them worse. You know, and the way, we, the way we do that is just notice that we don't have to tell ourselves stories. And if we do, it's okay. We don't have to tell ourselves stories about the stories we tell ourselves. 
You know, it's, it's always now. It's always, you can always take a fresh start. You can always take a deep breath. You know, come back into your body. Notice what's going on and then proceed with whatever, whatever's happening. There's emotions have intelligence. Sometimes. Sometimes they don't, but sometimes they do. So part of, part of our practice or part of our growth or part of our um, journey of being human is uh, to take the information in the emotion and test it, test it out, and then decide, okay, what, how, how is this useful? What am I going to do? Am I going to give money to the ACLU, or am I going <laughs> to get out the vote? Sorry, I'm talking about politics again. Um, and we can just um, start to relax with our pain. Okay, that's the sort of the one of the strange teachings. And the more we relax with our pain, the more we actually can start to experience joy. Because there's these gaps in the pain. We don't have to we don't have to maintain the suffering all the time. Nelson Mandela was asked if he was angry at his jailers after he spent 22 years on Robben Island. He said no. He said if I had gotten angry, they would have won. And that's the view. The view is, I can just experience this pain and I don't have to compound it. <clears throat> okay, last story and then we'll, we'll open it up. So there was a guy named Atisha who was a Buddhist teacher in the 10th century, or maybe the 11th century. And he was bringing um, uh, Buddhism from India to Tibet. And his thing was uh, practicing what are called the paramitas, which are the, the, the different practices of a, of a bodhisattva. And one of the practices is the practice of patience. <clears throat> and so uh, he was uh, worried because he had heard that the, the, the Tibetans were like a very kind and gentle and accommodating people. He was worried that he wouldn't be able to practice patience because nothing would make him impatient. So what he did was he hired a, um, a water boy who was the most incompetent boy he could find. And he would never bring the, the tea or the water on time and he would spill it and he would you know, it was just completely useless. And um, <clears throat> so that's who we went to Tibet with, was <laughs> this, this kid who, like, was, was so irritating and it was constantly irritating him. So his point was, well, okay, this is great because I can practice with this. And it, you know, it, and it's, this is our example of a great Buddhist teacher who's, you know, Give me the pain so I can actually learn to work with it. And the punchline is he was wrong about the Tibetans. He didn't need to hire the, the, the water boy because they were really irritating. <laughs> but 
this is what we do. It's we use obstacles as, as, as our path. So when there's an obstacle, okay, this is, how can I practice with this particular situation? So, okay, let's have a uh, discussion. Um, the, well, I guess one question I have is, um, you said to experience the pain mm. and then let it go, but when you experience the pain, then how do you know when to let it go? Yeah, sorry. I, you can't let go of the pain. What you can let go of is your story that you're telling yourself about your pain. So it's, it's the process of noticing and coming back. And you're, when, we, when we practice meditation, we're coming back to our breathing. So in this case, we're coming, it's the same process, but we're just coming back to, this is the way I feel. I'm not trying to push it away. I'm not trying to make it worse. I'm not trying to make it better. I'm just noticing how I feel. And it's, that's why we're, we, we, we're talking about decoupling our body sensation from our story that we tell ourselves. Because the story we tell ourselves usually exacerbates the emotion as opposed to making it um, less intense. Does that make sense? Yeah. And then the second question I had was, um, you said that people come, like, what have you said about people come in and you practice the, people come into your life and you practice, you know, that obstacle. Mm -hmm. So how do you know um, if the person who came into your life, you know, to practice that obstacle, how do you know if they should continue being in your life and you just keep practicing and get better at it or if they should not <laughs> be in your life anymore? Well, you'll see. You know, it's, um, um, you know, things that um, used to irritate me about my wife don't irritate me anymore. <laughs> she, no, she does X and she's been doing X for 35 years. And it used to be like, uh, and now it's like, uh, you know, it's, it, 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 it becomes, um, you, you develop this quality of equanimity of, Whatever happens is actually okay. I don't have to react anymore. It's just you notice it and then you let it go and keep on going. It's a practice. It's not, it's not uh, necessarily today's business or even tomorrow's business, but it might be next week's business. Uh, just write two concise questions. Uh, let's say you have a terrible story. Uh, hypothetical example. Wouldn't common sense say to let it go? Why do people want to walk around and obsess over the story, which would just put them in a state of uh, not so good all the time? Can you repeat your question? Let's say, let's just say people have bad stories, and wouldn't common sense dictate that they let the story go so they can be free of uh, more free, but instead they choose to obsess about it and carry it on for years and years. Why? That's so irrational, it seems. <laughs> Well, we're, we're, we're not rational animals. You know, we're, it's, we're, we're a product of some wacky evolutionary biology that made us, you know, turned us into these sort of, you know, crazy walking apes. Um, and who knows why, why people do that. But what, what the Buddha discovered, I guess, or 
maybe uh, was the first one to talk about it widely, was that we don't actually have to. And, you know, people obsess, you know, there's maybe there's bio, maybe people have OCD, you know, who knows why. But, um, and there, there may be biological reasons, and you get caught in a, in a loop. Um, but to the extent that you can, you can work with obsession, for example, you just, you, it doesn't mean that the obsession goes away. It means that it, you, you, you start to put space around it. Start to put space around the story where the story becomes maybe a little bit less serious, a little bit less solid. You know, we all, we, we, we tend to, we tend to have stories about ourselves that are solid because that's, that's how we build our personalities up from the ground up. It's, it's a series of stories about who we are. And, you know, we're not, we're not actually that person. We're, 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 in reality, we're just energy beings in space. And if you are able to let the story go, but then you can't forget it, because whatever bad thing happened to you might happen again. Well, think bad things will happen again. You know, and we can't, we can't protect ourselves from bad things. All we can do is, when bad things happen, is, is make a choice as to how we want to relate to them. But you don't want the same bad thing, the same bad thing to happen to well, you. Yeah, well, I mean, you, right. And the story is that you don't put your hand under a hot water tap. You know, you don't do that twice. So you don't have to tell, you don't have to tell yourself a story about that. You just don't do it. Or you don't, you know, you don't drive fast around this curve because it's too tight a curve. You don't do that more than once. So it's the same kind of thing. Is you learn, you know, you don't have to, you don't have to continually remind yourself. You'll, you'll know, you'll learn. Thank you. Uh, first, uh, thank you, Robert, and it was really good to see you. And I like the way that you, I found it helpful the way that you wove together science and dharma and family and politics and. You know, um, I don't don't run away from that. Um, I was a little troubled by the distinction between um, difficult emotions and trauma. Mm. Um, and the kind of instruction that you were giving and the wisdom that you were sharing and the long, like lots and lots of literature and insight on dealing with discursiveness and habitual patterns has a certain um, set of tools with it. Um, my experience with trauma is limited, but it, um, it includes, among other things, if the definition of enlightenment is that we see clearly and we understand the information content of our own thoughts, and if enlightened action is that we respond appropriately and skillfully. Um, trauma starts something off that has nothing to do with the situation in front of you. It's a, it's a replay of something from the past. Mm -hmm. And it's, um, you know, the, the most I ever made <laughs> mindfulness progress-wise with was that I realized that it had started and that it wasn't going away until it was going to go away. You know, if I got the bitter taste in my mouth from the adrenaline, I knew I was gone for a half an hour. Mm -hmm. 
and I could, you know, eventually make some acceptance for that. But, um, but I wasn't in that state of mind able to respond appropriately. You know, like what I was responding to wasn't what was happening in front of me. I was responding to something else. Mm -hmm. um, and it feels like it's something that comes up that sh quickly. Yeah. And that um, chemically um, has a different, requires a different texture to it or a different, I don't know. So is there a question in there? The question is what, what is the, what is the way of working with that? Because I think it's a different situation that requires a different set of tools. Yeah, well, it's, it's uh, again, I'm not a psychologist. Um, so uh, I can just tell you, I can just talk about my own experience here. But uh, trauma is, is, seems like a solidified um, um, pattern that arises over and over again. And as you said, you know, you, you, you have, uh, um, takes you, 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 when it comes up, it takes you a half an hour to, for it to, to go away. And you, you just know that. And that's fine. You know, it's, it's, you know, the fact that you can notice it is the key point. It's, we're not trying to do anything with it. I mean, there, there's, again, you know, there's, there's therapy and there's all sorts of mechanisms for, for working with trauma. But here, to the extent it arises, if we notice it, great. And then we can just feel it in our bodies. And, you know, because it's there anyway. You know, we can't, put, can't really push it away. Um, you know, people try to push it away and, and that, that's the... That's the, you know, why many traumatized people become addicts. Because it's, you're, try, you're trying to feel better. And the paradox here is we're not really trying to feel better. We're trying to feel what we feel. And the double paradox is that, make, that actually does make us feel better in the end. <laughs> um, I was just curious about I don't know, maybe I missed it, but what was the end of the story about the man who went to this neurologist? Oh, the end of the story is that he, he couldn't make any decisions because he couldn't ex experience his emotion in connection with his decision-making ability because the, 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 the core or whatever connects the amygdala to the prefrontal cortex was cut in the operation. Oh, so it was never reconnected? No. Right, okay. Yeah, and so it, it, the, the point is that actually, you know, we're, we're experiencing emotions all the time and they, they guide our behavior. Mm. And one thing we can do with meditation practice is start to notice that more. So is that to say that the amygdala is, is beyond just the fight and flight and freeze? It's also the seat of the rest of the emotions that Well, we're... it's, you know, again, uh, I'm not a psychologist, I'm not a neuroscientist. <laughs> um, so it's, it's known as the seat of the, of the instincts. And the way Deep, Deep, Deepak Chopra calls it the five Fs, which are fight, flee, freeze, feed, and reproduce. <laughs> so it, it, you know, it's, 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 it's about sort of impulse. 
So to the extent emotions are connected with impulse, I think they come from there. But you know, I think that there's a much, I think this is a very simplified way of talking about it. Thanks. Uh, so you were uh, talking about the practice, that you became become better, uh, the way you practice for this feeling, this emotion. And, but sometimes for me, I think, um, it's like a little bit uh, not constant, you mm -hmm. know? I, I worked a lot about self-love, uh, uh, self-esteem, and insecure. And at some point I said, yeah, I'm good. I, I'm doing how to do it. All the meditations, I know everything. And in my mind, I, I, I know how to do it. Uh, I, it, it as you say, uh, be kind to yourself and not criticize and stuff. But something happens, you know someone, or, and you open your heart and become very vulnerable, and then you feel insecure again. Mm -hmm. and, and then you think, wow, but I did all this work, and I thought I was better. Why I am like down again in this? Mm -hmm. And, uh, and wh why you say, like, it's practically all again, or you always gonna feel this again? Well, you know, sometimes, sometimes we're uh, um, we're balanced and sometimes we're not. And that's why Atisha got the kid to uh, irritate him. Because he knew that, you know, he was usually like very kind of a cool guy, but he knew that if he got really irritated, he'd blow up. So he wanted to experience that so that he could, he could work with it. So, you know, from, from your point of view, you could just look at those situations as, uh, okay, so I see that I have to work with this, and it just becomes part of the practice. You know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not uh, uh, at the point where this doesn't make me upset, or where I, or if it makes me upset, I can't deal with it properly. I, you know, I, I have a hard time. So it's, it's really you know, bringing obstacles to the path of, of meditation. I'm going back to the, uh, the example with the doctor again, I think um, um, the, the person whose uh, connection was cut. I'm just surprised or a little confused about that seems to me from that story that all our emotions, I mean, once you can't feel the emotion, you cannot make any decision at all or the which is a little surprising to me. I mean, seem, uh, is it that sometimes we are rational or is it, from that uh, uh, story, it seems like we are always completely rational, driven by emotions. Is that true? Well, you should, you should test it. You know, see for yourself. You know, we, we, I find that usually when I'm telling a story about why I did something, it's always wrong. You know, I mean, it may be sort of true, but it's not the real truth. You know, it's rational. We, we rationalize all the time. And, you know, we, you know, we can start to get into politics again, but, you know, it's, it's the fact that we don't know how we feel is the problem. We don't know why we feel how we feel is the problem. So it's really about you know, the more we, we um, 
have a um, sort of a granular experience of of what's actually happening in ourselves on a moment-to-moment -moment basis, which we do as we practice more and more because you know, we're, we're paying attention to our breath, but there's all sorts of things going on. Thoughts arise and they hang out and they leave and we feel, experience different emotions and stories arise. And we can, if we're just there with our breath, you know, there's nothing to do but notice what's going on. And so, you know, the more we can um, develop that ability to come back to the present, the more we can develop this granular um, relationship with what's going on inside us. And then, you know, the more we can um, develop a real sense of humor about, you know, how, <laughs> why we do what we do. <laughs> So I'm interested in what, if anything, Buddhism teaches about that next moment, mm -hmm. in that I have, in my life, I go into some complicated situation, or not so complicated situation, and I have an, an emotional reaction, fight or flight or fear, and it leads me to do something that turns out not to be very helpful to me or whatever's around me. And so I go into my meditation, and I learn to recognize these stories, and I learn not to attach to these stories, and I'm going back out into the world, right? I'm not just sitting in a monastery, and something happens, and I have a reaction, and I notice it, and I say, oh, that's a story, I'm not gonna be attached to it, and I'm gonna feel all the stuff around me, but there's still a wolf charging at me, or somebody you know, who's in high office, or you know, my boss did this, or my wife did that, right? And you still have to do something. Does Buddhism, once you just figure, oh, you'll figure it out, it's okay. Uh, as long as you're not distracted by all these false stories, you're fine, or is there anything that they have to say about how did you figure out what you should actually do next? Yes. <laughs> and so um, as we practice more and more um, we develop a uh, more insight into what's actually going on here um, what is uh, why are other people doing what they do. Why do I do what I do? What's, what's true and what isn't? Um, what's, what's reality? And one um, outcome of that is that we start to let go of our um, belief in a self, belief in a solid individual guy that's the sum of all, my, all the stories I tell myself, and start to realize, okay, there's actually nothing happening here. There's, literally, there's nothing happening. I'm just talking to you. And as that occurs, um, we start to, uh, as we become less and less self-involved, uh, what arises is compassion because we see that other people are suffering and the, the impulse, if you will, or the, 
the um, um, the way of being becomes uh, uh, a manifestation of compassion in in every situation. So, um, you know, that can look like anything. It can look like cutting, it can look like magnetizing, it could look like um, pacifying, it can look like enriching, <clears throat> look like destroying. <coughs> but it's really about using uh, prajna, which is wisdom or knowledge, and, or uh, uh, discriminating awareness and compassion to make a decision as to what to do. So, you know, I, I, I said it in a more simple way before, which is, you know, if you can actually come back to the present, then you can make a choice about um, what to do instead of just reacting. And this is sort of the, the advanced version of that. Appreciate that. Um, so this is a question about um, when I'm meditating and I notice that I'm telling myself a story um, and the instruction is usually let the story go and come back to your breath. But say it's a story um, and I notice that it's, there's an emotion behind it. Um, I feel that when I come back to my breath, it's a way of not letting myself feel the emotion. So should there be like a third step where I let the story go and then I let myself feel the emotion in my body and then go back to my breath? Or is the, is the idea that feeling it in your body is the same as going back to your breath? Hmm. That's kind of, I'm not clear on that. Yeah. So coming back to, the reason we come back to the breath is that the breath is just uh, a reference point or a metaphor. Mm -hmm. Because it's the only thing that's moving when we're sitting so that we know we're present if we're paying attention to our breathing, okay? At a certain point, your attention to the breath falls away later. And it's not meant to be a distraction as much as it is simply touching into the present, to now. So, um, the more we pay attention to the breath, the less we pay attention to the breath. And, you know, there's a, um, in, you know, after a certain point, you could, you could say that, okay, we're paying 25% paying attention to the breath and 75% attention to what's going on. Which is actually why in this um, lineage, we practice with our eyes open. You don't have to, but that's the, that was the original teaching. So that we're, it's about being on the ground, you know, being present, being here, you know, being earthy. And um, so the, the, the attention to the breath is simply noticing what's going on. And if we're, you know, and emotions are feelings, our body sensations. So we can just notice that. You know, whatever's happening is what's happening, and we're not pushing anything away. So don't be too um, attached to the breath as the reference point. You know, if you're feeling an emotion, just feel the emotion.
Well, thank you all for coming, and uh, uh, I hope you had a good time. <laughs> and so we have a reception outside. So thank you very much. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, we invite you to leave us a rating and review, subscribe, and share this episode with your friends. Shambhala NYC also offers a variety of meditation courses for meditators of all levels. Check out our upcoming programs at shambhalanyc.org. Thanks again, and we'll see you next week.